Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, once again, we are happy to have Charlie Veach from the Love Police uh, on tonight. Hey, Matt. <laughs> Hi, Charlie. Um, welcome to V Radio again. Um, hey, man. Are we live? You're absolutely live. Oh my God! I had a, I had my um, Skype set to do not disturb, and I missed your call. I mean, how 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 you know good is that? <laughs> well, you got my call now, so we're live now. Um, I know I have a lot of new listeners actually who I'm exposing to your work right now because I've been trying to tell the people in Occupy Wall Street about you. So go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience again, um, and uh, tell them what you do. You know, give them some history on you. Yeah. Well, there's nothing I like better than pulling my jacket over, open and exposing myself to new people. So, hello, new people. How the hell are you? Um, my name is Charlie Beach. I'm a um, filmmaker, activist, anarchist, generalized troublemaker, director and chief idiot of the Love Police channel here on YouTube. Um, I'm based in England at the moment, though I am Scottish, Brazilian, and my... My um, I guess mission statement is to try and inspire and awaken people away from their obedient drone-like stupor. And when and when you awaken people, it, it reconnects something beautiful inside us all. And I think we can have a lot more fun and um, be a lot happier if we realize that uh, centralized authority, the state, the police, teachers, managers have zero power over you. You just have to know how to deal with them. So ta-da, that's me. All right, awesome. Um, well, I basically was exposed to your work initially because uh, somebody had taken a clip of one of your uh, Everything is Okay videos, uh, more specifically the, the ones where you guys are standing out in front of the, I think it was, I don't remember, it was some building down in England. It was you and Danny Shine at the time. Um, you know, doing, and there was uh, the the clip that got me started was this Danny saying, you know, go back to your jobs. You know, if you don't have a job, you're a worthless human being. Consume, consume, consume until there's nothing left to consume. And that's what got me started. And then after that, I you know started to listen to a lot of your um, stuff. And uh, also, people, if you're interested in checking out his work, I've got a link to the his YouTube channel and his blog on my website, v-radio.org. Go to links. Otherwise, I'm also going to have Charlie give out the URL right now. Go ahead and do that at this point. Yes, yeah, uh, cveech.org. That's C-V-E-I-T-C-H.org. But, yeah, just go to V Radio and follow the link from there. And, you know, V Radio, I support it because V is for Beach in my, my um, situation. <laughs> so, all good. <laughs> I remember that. Um, well, uh, I guess we were going to be talking about a few things. I mean, a lot of my listeners have asked me uh, questions like, first of all, what what made you decide to end the love police, and then what made you decide to bring it back? Well, I think it's a stressful thing I do. Um, it's not on the surface stressful. I'm happy and you know in a good mood all day every day. But I think I I pay a a high subconscious psychic price for fighting the man and getting arrested and having to deal with all the hatred online and criticism and you know I I go out in the street and some people have a go at me in the street so. I, I dump it sometimes, much like um, a girlfriend in a tempestuous, fiery, passionate relationship. You know, some days you're on, other days you're off, but generally you love each other. So the love police, like like an idea, will never die. It's um, I, it's it's more of an idea, concept, uh, a way of being rather than an actual group. So whether I dump it or say that there is no more love police, it's just me being um, emotional and uh, running away from it sometimes. So... The Love Police is still going. The LPA, the Love Police Academy, is still going, and uh, you know it's a it's a fine label and it's what people know me by. So might as well carry on with it. For sure, for sure. Um, now I guess you. I mean, I understand exactly what you're talking about as far as like needing to take a break from time to time. I do the same thing with my own activism because I found that if you try to force it, you know, when you're just not into it, the quality of what you're doing tends to go right into the crapper and. So, you know, it just like anything else, you know, there are people who ask, you know, how can you possibly be, you know, doing these shows all the time, you know, or more specifically when you're watching the mainstream media, you know, they seem to be talking every day and it's no big deal to them. And they also have a team that works around the clock, you know, all you know, 24 hours a day coming up with stuff for the talking heads to say, whereas people like you and me have to go out, do research, you know, get out on the ground, take out, you know, in your case, some megaphones and rattle some cages, so to speak. And um, 
I guess uh, now we're kind of at the state where we're talking about something. I was, I always remember it was like, uh, to me, it was kind of too bad that you had stopped when you did, but I'm glad that you came back because now we have this Occupy movement going on. And um, there's just uh, something that I think that, you know, these people could definitely use some of your wisdom. So let's ask, I mean, first of all, I just want to ask you, you know, what is your impression of the Occupy movement and um, you know, what do you look, what do you see for its future? My my impression of the Occupy movement is generally a good one. I think it's a physical representation of a psychological shift in people brought about by um, technology, brought about by the Internet and the instant flow of information that now um, any Tom, Dick or Harry can see how the banking bailouts has benefited. Um, it's probably not even 1%. It's probably less than 1% of people. And um, I think the, the the very fact that Occupy movements are literally occupying central New York, central London, central many cities around the world is a great um, symbol of defiance. And um, it's also a great um, liberation of the soul for people to realize that, you know, the world belongs to everyone. Um, and the very fact that we obey authority or obey city states or police or national boundaries is merely a, a, um, a conditioning that we've all been put under. So to see people break out of the conditioning and uh, hold one big middle finger up to the establishment, is it's a beautiful thing. But on a more personal level, I, I have the best conversations of my life when I go out and meet people at the um, Occupy movements and spend time with them. So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of, as I said, it's a physical representation of a psychological shift in um, people's thinking in the West. I mean, People in the third world have known what to do, well, for over 100 years. They've been fighting imperialism and starting their underground militias and their guerrilla movements, and they know what to do because their oppression is um, is a, a jackboot to the face. Their oppression is their wives and children being raped and murdered in front of them and their land stolen. But because we in the West, in America and Canada, Britain, Germany, all these Western countries, that happened to our ancestors many hundreds of years ago, and our ancestors have fought and fought and fought until we've got this kind of love-hate relationship with the establishment now. We don't know what to do on a daily basis against our, um, our enslavement because our enslavement is purely almost now a, a psychological enslavement. I mean, on, on a personal level for me, I've spent one week in jail in the last two and a half years, but the psychological attack I've had from the establishment and from um, people who take it upon themselves to uphold the establishment is um is very great. So, um, generally, I mean, of course, the Occupy movement, it's got little problems. It's got, you know, it's become a beacon, a kind of focus point for every mentally disturbed person in these major cities to come along and drink and cause riots. But generally, I support the organizers. I support uh, what they've achieved. And I need to put my hands up and say that what the organizers at Occupy London have done I wouldn't have the patience to do that with such um, diligence and care that they have done. I mean, setting up a media tent, an info tent, a university, a welfare tent, a meditation tent, a free food tent, a free tea tent. It's very impressive. And um, I've got friends who spend every single night there for the last three and a half weeks. And I'm like, wow, these people have balls. They are withstanding the cold and they are remaining cheerful and happy in a way that I would have ended up, you know, getting angry and snapping at someone by now. Yeah, that's it. It's not to say that it's always perfectly peaceful there, but I have to agree that um, when I'm there, it I immediately, I guess, as they put it anyway, at least in Occupy Detroit, it was a matter of, you know, catching the bug, so to speak. Uh, I actually started to feel homesick when I wasn't there, just because, as you said, the conversation level was so great. You may not agree with everybody that you're talking to, but there were just a lot of people who were socially conscious, you know, um, I mean, it was also an interesting, I don't know what it's like in Occupy London, but, you know, in Occupy Detroit, we have people from so many different ideologies gathered together and conversing. I mean, I saw socialists, communists, anarchists, and even some free market libertarians who, you know, although they didn't agree on everything, for the most part, were able to uh, at least um, have decent dialogue about things. Um, I also, I mean, did it, uh, do they use the consensus model decision-making process at the General Assemblies in London? Yes, they do. What is your impression of that? Uh, I, I much prefer a much more passionate um, 
exchange using words and uh, you know dialogue. I'm not so keen on this whole hand waving, uh, taking ten hours to come to a decision about process kind of thing. But you know it seems to work for them, and it's nice to see all the young people getting involved in protests for the first time and you know see, getting their voices heard in the democracy. But Funnily enough, I've changed one opinion since the Occupy movement started. When I first went down there and I went on um, Adam Kokesh's um, show, Adam versus the Man, and I was talking about how Occupy London need to keep themselves leaderless. But now, seeing what I see there, seeing the, the sometimes chaotic nature of the camp, I think there may be the need to elect some representatives or leaders or so forth, ones that can be you know, removed from power if they turn into little Hitlers. But... I um I, I I used to think it could it could work organically with just everyone in charge of everyone, but knowing what I know about human nature and our our um our liking of tribal connections, um I think we do need some um some good strong leaders there at Occupy London. Well, you know, um uh, that's actually something that I've talked to some people about when I was at Occupy Detroit as well, and there's always a uh, kind of a paranoia even about leaders. Um, yeah. that it, it almost gets a little bit over the top. I mean, I'm all about not having any kind of overbearing authority, but um, for some decisions, like especially, you know, like if the police are going to be here in five minutes to run us out of camp, we don't have time to hold a general assembly and get absolute consensus on every decision that's going to have to be made. And fortunately yeah. enough, they seem to have people that, you know, come together pretty well and manage to handle these kinds of incidents in a quick fashion, but I think it's kind of a matter of, as I've said to people before, and uh, Senator Mike Gravel, a uh, presidential candidate who ran a few, uh, basically one of the last times, and you know, he pointed out that he thinks that when the colonies came together initially, there was a, uh, a town hall meeting system, but people did elect representatives for themselves. Well, one thing that we don't have that they had is that if um, somebody does become tyrannical, then you also have the power through referendum to remove or recall one of your leaders, um, and as long as that you know is in place, then yeah, you can generally get away with having representatives. It's just a system like we have, at least in the United States, where you know George Bush was under, I think it was like under 30% approval rating through much of his time as president. We had to suffer for three years because there was no system to remove him. So um, I guess that would be, I mean, at least especially, I mean, even if you just give them different names, like administrators, coordinators, whatever you want to call them, sometimes there will have to be somebody who, you know, who keeps things directed. Um, I mean, does that, is that kind of the compromise that you're thinking of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because we all see, I mean, it's happened to Occupy London anyway, that the stronger, more alpha male, alpha female type personalities end up being de facto um, leaders anyway. So it would be nice if there was more of a kind of vote, I guess, to elect people. And then um, I guess the kind of solution to this, as you just said, Neil, would be that people can be removed from power. But I have great faith in people, especially in small tribes. I mean, Occupy London is a tribe of maybe about 150 people, 200 people. So within something that small, word spreads very quickly. And, and if someone's acting like a little uh, dictator, I, I don't think um, they would stay in power for very long. So, yeah, man, like... Um, also, Neil, I've been meaning to ask you for a long time, very, very off-topic here. What sure. are you wearing in this photograph with red and black with a big cowboy hat on? <laughs> oh, you're looking at um, – basically, I, I participate in a live-action role-playing hobby, and that's what I was wearing is my Renaissance garb. So, oh, battle reenactments. Yeah, well, I wouldn't call them battle. I mean, it's a lot of soft weapons. Nobody gets hurt, but um, – I think the only reason that I can still participate in it is that you can actually uh, be a good guy and there are actual bad guys. <laughs> you know? um, but that's, you know, it's just something I do to help relieve stress every now and then. But that's basically what you're looking at. Um, but anyway, um, uh, overall, though, uh, okay, so you, as you pointed out, there are, there are some assertive personalities who – you know, inevitably will kind of have uh, more influence on people. I think that what I have found and what I've suggested to them is that if you have an assertive personality, it is your job as a leader within this system, um, you know, to uh, kind of be sure that everyone is heard, you know, encourage more uh, constructive and in equal conversation. Even if you are a leader in a circumstance like that, you know, like maybe there'll be somebody who's a little more shy and, and they start to raise their hand and they put their hand back down because somebody more assertive starts talking, then it's your job at that point to kind of stand up for that person 
you know, and um, make sure that they speak and say, hey, uh, yeah, this person wanted to speak. And even if you have to get someone else to back down a little bit so that everybody is heard. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a responsibility that leaders in these kinds of movements should have. Uh, I mean, have you ever read, I mean, do you, do, you, do you concur with my thinking here? Do you understand where I'm coming from there? Yeah, Neil, 100%, of course. Um, but also we need to be careful that um, in, a, in a kind of protest um, organization like the Occupy Movement, I, I don't think it is um, a place for um, shrinking violets or wilting personalities. I think at this time of war, we're in a psychological war against the establishment. Um, if people are too shy or too quiet, then, you know, they need to maybe look within themselves and maybe be a bit more forward themselves. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, the, the, the stronger personality should facilitate um, those with um, with a less of a voice to speak. But um, I'm, I'm I'm only concerned that we don't have the time to listen to every you know very meek um, personality out there who might just add something you know banal to the conversation. So I think um, given an infinite time scale, yeah, we could um, the, the the Occupy movements could be everything. It could be a spiritual retreat. It could be a welfare center for the homeless. It could be a protest thing. It could be a militia. But we don't have enough time now. I mean, we're the, the planet's going to be ruined any day now. So I think it needs to concentrate on being an efficient and um, powerful uh, protest movement above everything. Excellent. You know, um, now I guess uh, you had done some love police activism, and uh, I, what kind of reaction did you get from the people in Occupy London when you were doing your typical megaphone routines? Yeah, well, uh, yesterday it wasn't with the megaphone. I'm trying a just natural voice, trying to project my voice a bit more. But um, just to give you an example of how sometimes we, and I mean we as in any group of people, can sometimes shut down dissent and shut down protests for whatever psychological reasons, which, which I'll get on into in a second. But I was at um, Occupy London yesterday, and the police have put up this massive barricade between the Stock Exchange and the St. Paul's Church. I don't know if you've seen St. Paul's Church in the media? Not yet. Okay, anyway, it's the main church in all of England. It's this massive, strange-looking structure. It's quite beautiful. It's impressive for a church. But when you go in it, you're like, my God, the amount of slaves that probably died to build this house of God. Anyway, um, there I was doing my kind of usual ranting. and uh, I have this um, character, which um, proved to be deeply unpopular, but I, I was using it yesterday. I call him False Enthusiasm Man. And um, so I'll be, I'll be kind of heckling the police and trolling them, and I'll be like, yay, blah, 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 this and that, like having a go at the police. And the police were standing there, and they were taking it like men, and I was getting quite, you know, cutting in my criticism of them. But the only people that came up to try and shut me down were members of Occupy London. And let's let me be very clear. It wasn't all of Occupy London. I had about 20 people standing around me going, yeah, Charlie, go on, you tell them. But one or two members of Occupy London came over and said, oh, we find what you're saying um, is aggressive and offensive and uh, we, we, we ask you to stop. You have to stop because this doesn't represent uh, Occupy London. And I was like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Like, <laughs> who are you to tell me what, what represents Occupy London? And it's just people, I think there is this um, top Trump's Trump card mentality among some protesters and they're stuck in this activist um, um, cycle of failure and failure and failure. And this is and I say this more about the older protesters, people in their 50s and 60s, who have gone to so many protests and failed and failed and failed. And now they're almost stuck in this broken record loop of every protest having to be about them failing. And then they see me and I'm very energetic and I'm out there and I'm having a go at the police and they come and try and shut me down. And I was very disappointed, but Neil, not surprised because that's what people are like. You were, I guess, basically, did they feel that what you were doing was more aggressive than they're used to? Well, yeah, I mean, I filmed it. It's going to go on YouTube soon. It wasn't aggressive. I mean, hmm. it was just, um, I would say, if I may pat myself on the back here and um, praise my own actions, uh, I would say it was um, cutting and uh, provocative um, insults. So, um, no, I mean... Like I, I guess I was doing it yesterday because I saw the treatment of the protesters by the police in Occupy Wall Street when they all got evicted, and I saw a pregnant woman get um, maced. I saw an elderly woman get pepper sprayed. I saw this other woman get punched in the face. 
And the British police are exactly the same as the American police. And so I don't want all these people that occupy London to suffer this Stockholm syndrome, like, oh, the police are our friends and we'll win them over and they're here being nice to us. And it's like, I'm, I'm reminding them, look, as soon as they get the order from the City of London Corporation, they will gleefully and happily come here with their truncheons blazing and the big kind of sadistic kind of arrogant smile on their faces and they'll, they'll beat you all up. So people are under this, I guess, illusion that if they're like, oh, softly, softly, and peace and love and nice, that the establishment will go, oh, well, okay then, we'll, we'll negotiate with you. The only thing the establishment understands, because it's become a sadistic and predatory psychopathic system, is um, force. And I mean, I don't mean physical force, but psychological force. And if you don't have the balls to stand up to them and speak your mind, then in, in effect, you become part of the background. You become a nice, colorful hippie protester with dreadlocks in the background that the establishment will ignore like they've always ignored. But if you become an insurrectionist on the psychological um, battlefield, then um, more people will notice you. And that's what I think people were trying to shut me down for, is that they were worried in this kind of weird um, sub subconscious uh, way that I was being effective. And uh, what a failed activist hates more than anything is to be up, upstaged by someone being effective. Well, there has been a conflict even within the group that I'm part of uh, between the people who want to be more militant um, and the people who want to be more passive. Uh, you know, there's the ones that, you know, kind of model themselves more on the civil rights movement, at least the Martin Luther King slash Gandhi aspect of the civil rights movement. And then there are some people that want to be a bit more like the Black Panthers, um, you know, want to be a bit more provocative. And you know, I'm, I've kind of exchanged in dialogue with both of them. I just, it's, for me, it kind of depends on the situation. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It, I mean, if a police officer, because some of them, you know, you do run into them every now and then are conscious of what you're talking about and they might actually be on your side. And I recognize that doesn't happen very often. Um, but you know, obviously we're not going to jump on that guy's face, but you know, if there's like that one cop who, um, oh, I, I can't believe I've forgotten his name, but, as he beat on some girl in England, um, I think you had a confrontation with him at one point. His name was um, Leroy Smelly. No, Delroy Smelly. Right. What a name. <laughs> I'm intimidated. Um, you know, when you have a guy that's like that, then, you know, at that point, you're dealing with somebody who's probably a bit too damaged. You know, he's not going to listen to anything you're going to say. You know, he's at that point completely conditioned by the state. And that's, I think... Um, one of the points that I, I understand, because I see both sides of the argument, um, it's it's kind of a matter of figuring out what's going to be effective in a given moment, because in some yeah. cases, the militantism, you know, will win people over, and in some cases, it'll turn people off, you know, so it's a question of figuring out what kind of crowd you're dealing with and what's going to be most effective. Because like, as you pointed out, it's a war, you know, and it's a matter of picking the kinds of battles you can win. You know, yeah. and however, you know, applying the proper strategy. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, um, the strategy I've um, kind of come to at the moment from all my experience and all my um, activism is one of um, total psychological resistance to any symbol of authority and any um, foot soldier of the establishment, i.e. the police. And I do make it clear when I start having a go at them that, like, it's not personal. Um, it's, a, it's a go at the uniform, but unfortunately, they've chosen to wear that uniform. And this whole lie that I just want to make it very clear to all the listeners now, that the police join the police to protect and to serve society, is a big myth. The police, they generally join the police force for two things, for ego massage and for a paycheck. And the ego massage is to wear a uniform, carry a gun, be a big kind of authority man. And the paycheck, I mean, I don't know in America, but in Britain, and the pay for the police is quite good and they get a great pension and uh, they get to beat people up legally. So if you really want to protect and to serve your society, why don't you go and work for a charity? Why don't you go and work with disabled children or something? That's the real protecting and serving. The, to me, um, I've kind of broken through my own uh, personal Stockholm syndrome and I, I just view them as the modern day Roman centurions of, of the Roman Empire. And um, the police was, were inaugurated in Britain and then subsequently in America not to fight crime, but to be the monopoly on violence against all the other gangs. And we saw this portrayed quite nicely in that Scorsese film, Gangs of New York. You see the, 
the Bill O'Reilly character, Felice Man. Sorry, no, what was it? what's that actor called? It's not Bill O'Reilly, that's the Fox News guy. Anyway. That, <laughs> a um, different bully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. That guy, the, the, the policeman and gangs in New York. I mean, that he is the true representation of what the police really are. And the reason why they fight crimes and solve murders and rapes is because they kind of have to. Otherwise, the sheeple would notice that they are purely the enforcement thugs of the ruling class. Now, you know, I think that um, it, it's also fair to say that some people might get into that just like some people get into the military under the impression that they're going to be protecting people or serving their country or whatever, and that the job itself can can have an effect on you. You know, um, just doing that job over and over again and, and being in those groups of people can slowly kind of rob you of, like, some of the more basic elements of humanity, um, yeah. especially since you're exposed to propaganda pretty much nonstop. You know, when you're in either of those kinds of organizations, whether it's the military or the police, and there are going to be exceptions, but, you know, they're basically bombarded with it. I mean, and everybody who is the thing that I usually tell people when they're when they're communicating with police is that they have to understand that these people are generally being told that we're all terrorists in the making. Um, yeah. And, and like uh, just watching the Zeitgeist film, uh, actually, there's a uh, there's a flyer that got uh, distributed among law enforcement in the United States that. You know, anybody who watches that film is automatically associated with militant militias intent on, you know, eventually, you know, enacting violence against the state. And, you know, so every single person who watches that film, you know, is obviously going to be a terrorist. And um, yeah. I get so that's, you know, it's it's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, I do believe that we will see just as we see soldiers who come home and kind of figure out, you know, that that uh, there was a whole lot of hogwash going on out there. I'm not so happy with that. You know, um, there are going to be people um, who emerge from the police force with the same kind of senses, at least so I hope. Um, and it's it also I think it is it's going to be different in the region. Like in Detroit, the police are very nice to us, and um, I think a lot of that though is is that they're also getting you know uh, basically hurt by the local economy. It's falling out from under them. You know, the, yeah. the lots of layoffs and, you know, it's it kind of breaks down the veil. You know, I've noticed the same thing with um, just people in general. Anybody who's doing financially well is usually really good at brainwashing themselves into thinking that there's nothing wrong with the world, that every single unemployed person is there by choice, you know, that every single protester is just a drugged out hippie who doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, they, they allow themselves to buy into this nonsense. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the film Capitalism, A Love Story, where yeah. it's talking to the CEO of Nike, who had convinced himself that nobody in Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, wants jobs making shoes. You know, that we just don't want to do the job, and, and that it's better that he you know, employs 14-year-olds in China. What's even scary about it is that he believes it, and he actually projects himself as being like a nice, mellow guy. You know, but yeah. honestly, has allowed himself to believe that nonsense. You know, um, yeah. you, especially people like you, and that's one of the things you know that actually attracted me to your work in the first place was the fact that sometimes you'll get on the micro, you know, the microphone, and you'll be saying stuff that's that's normal that would be even considered to be establishment, when, but you're saying it in a tone of voice that makes it so obvious that you're being sarcastic. And it kind of exposes it. It's like when you guys were hanging up those signs that said everything is okay, and the police walked up and wanted to bother you. And, and I think it was Danny was like, so you're telling me it's against the law for me to stand here and hold a sign that says everything is okay. You know, yeah. um, you guys really have to shatter through a veil that people are in that w allows them to try to pretend that the establishment is fine. I noticed that while I was out there is that, you know, there's this Greek town casino in Detroit. And there's people sleeping outside under blankets, you know, in a really cold weather. And then there was people in the building playing with money, you know, throwing money into slot machines and, you know, and whatever else and just having a gay old time. And if they walked outside, they might not even perceive the person lying on the side of the road. And that's one of the reasons why I've told Occupy people they need to check out your work is because, you you know, you definitely have some very interesting uh, satirical skills for waking people up. Um, can you think of any, uh, like, in your time as an activist, anybody that you've changed that has, you know, kind of resonated in your mind or anybody that, you know, was originally establishment that was woken up by your work? Yeah, of many um, people on YouTube, commenters who turned from haters into lovers, 
And I get the occasional uh, email as well saying that, you know, I, I hated you and I hated your message, but then I lost my job or my children kept asking me to watch your videos and then we were changed. I'm, I'm very lucky, Neil, that the Everything is OK series that I did with Danny and the earlier Love Police work, that was a direct reflection of where I was spiritually in my own psychological awakening. So they are very inspiring films. They are very honest in that the relationships I had with the police and with the people that confronted us with, with those um, films when we were out megaphoning was, was very real and very, um, I wouldn't say naive, but innocent. I was innocent in my awakening. But as I've done this now for almost three years, I feel that um, it's time now for, for phase two, I guess. Because um, the films I've done, however many were of the, old, of the old type, the kind of spiritual awakening, let's make fun of authority and show that we're all one. Um, they will be there on YouTube forever, you know, until civilization collapses. So I don't feel the need to be a broken record and showing people how beautiful life is. I've done that. Right. But for me now, now we're in the fight. Now we're in the war. This is the insurrection. We are um, in truly in the kind of spiritual battlefield of trying to do this. And for me as well, in this era now of complete media saturation and instant information, I mean, I've got a telephone that's got hyper-fast internet on it. I can watch YouTube films on my phone. Um, I don't think we have the time anymore to try and softly, softly awaken people, especially those in the police. Sometimes I think to be kind, you have to be cruel and to really love someone. And I get this criticism the whole time. Think, oh, my God, Charlie, how can you be aggressive if you call yourself the love police? You have to love, 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 love. And for me, no. Like, you know, when I was a little <laughs> shit, my dad would, he would love me very angrily. You know, he'd be you know, very mad and aggressive. And sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. And the worst thing you can do, I think, when you see people acting really badly, sometimes the worst thing you can do is to be really softly and almost normalize their experience. You know, um, some of the best furies I've seen have been from a mother to a child or from a brother to a sister. And that is, you know, righteous fury when you see something hateful. And because you love humanity or you love that person, you will really make them very clear in their heads that you do not agree and you do not approve. And that is my answer to all the um, myopically visioned people who think that because my group is called the Love Police Academy, it has to be pure hippie love and peace. I mean, yeah, of course, the end goal, well, everything I believe in is directly related to love and peace, but there's different tactics. And um, historically as well, we've touched upon this in our previous um, discussion, but the Native Americans, man, like, I'm not the world's best historian in Native Americans, but I'm sure they were all about love and peace. But when genocide came to their shores, they turned into warriors. I mean, that's just the way it is. You can have all the love in your heart, but if someone wants to kill your kids, what are you going to do? Hug them? No. Obviously not. Now, um, we have a couple of callers. Do you want to take some callers? Absolutely. Let's get the callers in. All right. Uh, caller from the 425 area code, you're on the air. Uh, hello? Yep, you're on the air. Welcome to V-Radio. Hi. Hi. Uh, my name is Nina. I've been a huge fan of Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Um, hey, how's it going? It's going good. Um, I've been a big fan of Charlie and Danny for a long time. Um, I'm here in Seattle, or near Seattle, and people out here just aren't aware of what's going on anywhere they're they're like oh this is worldwide <laughs> you know they're just following what you know fox news is telling them or, and they're just uh and i've been going out with my daughter to different protests with our everything is okay signs and hey. getting some yeah it's been great getting some warm responses and people are like where are you coming up with that and i'm referring them to um carly's videos on youtube for the most part you know, to try and get the message out here a little bit. People are totally unaware of a lot of That's things. That's wonderful. And and I've been a big Thank fan you, of... Oh, no problem. So I've talked to you online on Facebook. In fact, I talked to you the day I quit my job. Hey! <laughs> and I, it just felt so good because I was just so sick and tired of the system. I mean, I've been off the bank grid for years. Um, a lot of it has to do with the... the the Venus Project and Zeitgeist, I've gotten involved in in watching those videos and passing those videos on to people worldwide that I've worked with. 
to try and just get them to be aware of, you know, what's going on out here. And mm-hmm. they're they're just blind. There's there's so many people. They're just so asleep. <laughs> so did you have a question for Charlie, or was this just kind of a, a thank you? Oh, this is just it, it, this is so great to actually get to. I mean, the 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 signal is so clear. When I started listening, I'm like, screw it, I'm calling in. Um, hey. Because I mean, I I've been seriously a huge fan of Charlie and Danny for a long time, from when they were together, from when they split up. I was so sad, and recently, just the other day, to see um, them in a video together again, I thought it was pretty awesome. Because together, I think they spread such a great message. They've inspired me to go out on Black Friday. Um, they, uh, there's just been a lot of things that they've inspired me to do and to talk to people about. It's, it's, I've been to the Occupy Everett, which is north of Seattle, out here, and just didn't quite fit in. There was nobody really my age. It was the Great Gray Nappers, <laughs> which is what I call them, and um, kids. You know, it wasn't, there wasn't really anybody within my age group. I think they're not utilizing the Internet in the fashion that they should to be getting the information. Yeah. Go, ahead just, um, Go ahead, Charlie. I, yeah, if I can just butt in right there. I, I'm, I'm just very thankful for your words, and thank you for the support, and thanks for watching. My my personal feeling about, like you mentioned, that people aren't aware, and your friends saying, what, this is a world movement. I, I've been thinking about this a lot, like what drives certain people like us to care and to search out knowledge and to check YouTube videos or to check information and to read books or to have these conversations when we have been brought up with the exact same indoctrination and the same brainwashing in the public school system as right. everyone else. Then we need to start looking at each individual person subjectively and say, what is it, what is it about them? that makes them not want to look for this information. Because there must be a yearning in our soul for us to want to read about freedom. I mean, anyone could go to Google and type in the word resistance or type in the word revolution, and that will open up a massive world to them. But why don't they do it? They just, they just don't. They, they just live in that denial that it's not, it's not happening. They, they yeah. believe it. Right. My roommate, for example, makes over twenty, like twenty-eight dollars an hour, and he says, "Oh no, the economy is just fine. I think you know this is all just going to fade out. It's it's non-existent." Me, I haven't been able to get a decent job since I graduated from school to even pay my student loans. So it would seem then that at least you know it's it's that's actually the funny point about you going ahead and using an "everything is okay" sign is that. Those people who you're talking to, who everything is going fine for, it's it's really easy for them. It's almost like they need to believe that everything is okay, so that they don't feel guilty about the fact that it's not. You know, right. it it allows them to kind of tune out the fact that you know it's okay for them, but they don't want to face the fact that it's not okay for everyone else. Um, I want to thank you for calling in. I, I've got some other callers, but um, uh, thanks for calling in to V Radio. Thank it was you. great. Thanks, Charlie. It was great talking to you. You yes. too. Thank you. All right. All right. Um, from the eight zero eight area code. You're on the air. Hey. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to V Radio. Hi. I'm doing well. Hey, Charles. Did you have uh, a? I just want to thank all of your past work. Outstanding. Uh, I think I was first introduced to you when you went to, uh, I believe, Toronto for the G20, and and through that entire. Scenario. I know that it's absolutely heart-shattering and not surprising that uh, you were treated in such a way. Um, but that's kind of my introduction to what uh, you were involved in in your activism, and, and it was very inspirational to say the least. Um, but going forward with the Occupy uh, demonstrations, uh, what do you see yourself um, future involvement, maybe with workshops or uh, any kind of um, uh, town halls or any events like that. Is that something that sparks your interest or, or are you uh, primarily um, just going to stick to YouTube? Because I, I think whatever direction you go, you're going to be effective. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I've i been down at the Occupy London. Um, I mean, it's the only one that's near me. Um, as often as I can, I've been there every day, but most days I've been down to Occupy and, uh, and I, we have very informal, like just normal human gatherings where 
I speak to 10 people, 20 people, or five people at a time, and that's how I do it. But the way that's always worked for me is to reach out to thousands of people through YouTube as well, and that way you can make it a global meeting and so forth. And, um, yeah, I, I, I guess what, I, what you probably heard from the start of my chat with Neil is that I, I am feeling this burning desire in my body to get more involved in a real um, like outlet like this, but I've kind of shot myself in the foot. My films becoming uh, popular has been a mixed blessing for me in that I am recognized by people at the Occupy movements, and they it's wonderful, and we can have a conversation straight away because they know exactly where I'm coming from. They're like, oh, you're Charlie Beach, and then we launch straight into a really hard-hitting conversation. But this has also been my downfall, is that I have lost my anonymity. So my ability to take part in a underground or a direct action group or something a bit more militant, I've almost ruined that chance for myself. So I guess the best I can do is to be a, a spokesperson, to be someone I can maybe inspire, and um, I can maybe share some of my insanity with people, because you have to be crazy to not feel uh, scared by authority. And if I can just share that with people, the, the best way I find of doing it is through YouTube at the moment and by doing radio shows like this. But no, I hear you. There's nothing that compares to actually being face-to-face -face with someone in a meeting or face to 10 people. So, yeah, no, good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if I could share uh, our experience here, I'm part of a, um, a public broadcasting show station out of uh, Austin, Texas, called Zeitgeist Live. and We've been getting involved with the Occupy protesters um, and, and just engaging them in a level and kind of get their insight and um, trying to put that content uh, into uh, kind of a television show format, a Q&A, roundtable, social commentary, you know, some fun, quirky things just to uh, involve the community and also bring awareness to, you know, what the future may hold. So nobody really knows. But what we do know is that uh, people are really engaging in amazing dialogue. It, it's a really, really uh, breathtaking to say the least because we're now we're seeing people from all walks of life, old, young, um, you know, businessmen, and even some police officers have managed to kind of come forward and say how they feel about the entire uh, event and the demonstrations that are taking place. So that's been successful for us, and it's been um, – really enjoying, uh, fulfilling, to say the least, that, you know, we have now this amazing opportunity for people to shed that uh, thick skin that they've been building this whole time and, you know, have a place where they can not only have uh, maybe a, a venting session, but also talk about possible solutions. So, um, again, uh, that's that's uh, our experience here, and we're having a really good time, and, and I think you you kind of you, you're pivotal in that because you uh, you influence influenced us in a way to be creative with our dialogue as you, as you are in your uh, in your engagement with the community. So again, thank you. No, thank you very much. No, it's great to hear. Thanks again for calling in. Um, I hope we can hear from you again in a future episode of E Radio. Thank you. All Appreciate right. It, guys. No problem. So. Um, Charlie, uh, I guess, you know, as you were saying earlier, you know, um, now that you've moved on beyond everything is okay, you know, what does the future of the Love Police hold? I mean, um, you said you're kind of moving in a new direction. Um, can you elaborate on what that direction will be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the filmmaking side, um, I'm involved in a documentary project, which, um, for privacy reasons, because it involves people that other people know, um, I need to stay quiet about it, but... It's a, it's a fascinating one, and it involves activism, the human soul, psychology, the state, and um, our relationship with each other. So I'm involved in a big um, documentary I'm making right now. But really, because we are at such a, I guess we are at the beginnings of the collapse of um, civilization, and I don't want to sound like a dramatic end of days kind of guy, but we're at the beginnings of the, you know, the certain, the end of the baby boom era of, you know, unlimited growth and prosperity for everyone. We're at that end. So I want to be a commentator. I want to carry on making my, not daily, but my, you know, every other day, my YouTube films. And I want to get a bit more involved in actually doing stuff in the real world. One thing I realized when I resurrected the LPA, the Love Police Academy, 
is that there um there is a need in my soul to um have bigger and more meetings in in the real world and the occupying uh venue has been a perfect setting for that to just take place um naturally so um as a filmmaker i want to make um crazy original films and as um a human being i want to um help shake the tree so that the apples of revolution can fall from it now um I guess basically you're also uh, at some point anyway we've been talking about this uh you're going to be involved in the documentary film that I'm making called Troll uh talk about some of the experiences you've had with you know with people who just kind of try to silence the argument by you know bringing up all kinds of unrelated nonsense or we've also noticed that it's gone beyond just the issue of regular people insulting each other endlessly to distract from the meat of an argument we now have governments that are, you know, uh, researching, you know, computer software to pretend to be large quantities of people, you know, having one opinion or another that benefits their, you know, benefits them, um, and also trying to yeah. educate people about the tactics that they use. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you put together. Danny's made a video for it so far. I've got oh, wonderful. Stuff from Stefan Molyneux. Uh, uh, there's also uh, Ben Stewart from Chimatica Esoterica. Um, it's recorded. Sorry to interrupt. Does Stefan Molyneux get trolls as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How can anyone dislike Stefan? He's so good at what he does, and he's so ego-free, and he's such a nice <laughs> guy. I mean, like, I can understand why people hate me, because sometimes I'm an asshole and I get things wrong, but Stefan's generally on the ball. But the fact that he gets haters makes me feel better, because I guess it's not just me. But, um, no, thanks for raising it. I look forward to contributing something to your film, and I'm honored that you asked me. But what I found, and let this be um, my advice um, for anyone dealing with the, um, the troll infestation, is that you need to understand, first of all, that these people are very unhappy, and uh, they might not even know they're unhappy. They might even get a base sexual pleasure from hating and spreading their misery, because they do become relevant, because they, they send out mi like missiles of misery. And um, what I found in YouTube, um, because my work is on YouTube, is that the best way to deal with it is to um, just simply block them and delete the comment. Nothing infuriates a troll more than going back and seeing that they've been blocked and that their comments have been removed. And um, I've had uh, one guy, he, um, it's so much quicker for me to block than it is for him to set up a YouTube account, but he didn't give up for about two weeks. Every day there was like, Charlie is scum. Charlie is an asshole. These are YouTube account names. Charlie is blocking me. Charlie is a censorship whore. And <laughs> I'm like, I was like, wow. But he eventually gave up because it takes one second to block someone and it takes about 10 minutes to set up a YouTube account. So you can win that way. But um, saying that, I think I don't mind when people do a video when they have a massive go at the YouTube haters because I'm happy someone confronts them because sometimes, as Martin Luther King says, silence is betrayal. And if you let people just write hate and racism and homophobia all over your comment section, it's almost like you're letting them come to your house and write a Nazi symbol on your door. So what I would say is that blocking hate isn't censorship. All it is is um, discouraging people who have mental issues from ruining a message board. And so just uh, moderate. But all, the, all you're doing when you block uh, a hater is you're moderating the comment section so that reasonable debate can take place and um, if people want to call me a censor they're probably a hater so i'll just block them for saying that so <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's it's interesting that you put it that way also as you pointed out it's your youtube channel or your message board or you know whatever else is that because we move, moved into a new age the the concept of of what someone's home is is different you know i mean obviously you know, these people would want the right to be able to kick you out of their house if you walked in there with a megaphone saying stuff that they didn't like, you know, yeah. but they, but they, however, do think it should be their right to take a big, you know, intellectual shit all over your YouTube channel, you know, and that's, yeah. it's just, it's something I think that now that we have this new world that is the internet, you know, there, there are going to be some social, you know, uh, stigmas that need to be established. And it's, it would be censorship if you were to say, go to the FCC, have the person's computer taken from them, and prevent them from ever going anywhere else and saying anything. You know, when I throw someone out of my house, it doesn't stop them from protesting on the street corner. But on the yeah. same token, I shouldn't have to put up with that, you know, on, in my own area. You know, it's like, 
Um, there was a guy actually made that very comment. It's like he thinks that, you know, every troll seems to think that they're entitled to go to someone else's website that they're paying for with their money and say whatever they want. You know, that's what they make their own website for. So, Absolutely. It, and it's called, um, it's called YouTube and not YouComment. So why don't they make a video if they've got such strong feelings about it? What it is, and you're aware of this, Neil, because you're making a documentary about it, is that they don't want to have a private chat about how much they hate. They need their hate to be seen by all. They need to actually, as you say, take a shit on someone's intellectual property because they want their shit to be seen by everyone because it's a, a desperate crying out for attention. So they are the most mediocre of minds. And, um, yeah, like after the summer I've had with the whole BBC 9-11 thing, I've developed this kind of rhinoceros skin that, you know, the hate just kind of falls off me like flies, you know. It's just, but, you know, I, I do moderate my comment section every day. I think it's important. And, like, I don't, I don't censor the comments that are just, you know, critical. But when they are, like, you know, having a go at my sister or calling me a pedophile or something that's not related to the film, I just block and delete. Block and delete. That's my that's my motto. Block and delete. Well, as you said, you know, when someone's critical, it isn't the problem. It doesn't become a problem until, like you said, having a go at your sister. You know, I've had people, you know, make videos to make fun of my little boy. He's like four years old, you know. And it, people ask me, you know, does that make you emotionally react? I'm like, no, I've been I've been past that for a long time. But it's important that people understand that they do these things either to a terrorize people. You know, like, it's it's basically a kind of a mental terrorism. They're trying to terrorize you by attacking your sister, hoping your sister will then in turn put pressure on you not to speak anymore. That's coercive. You know, Absolutely. that's the kind of stuff that the state does to us. Um, yeah. And that's... And you um, raised, um, go ahead. You raised a very good point about um, these, because I've seen the direct evidence. It's in the mainstream media that government agencies will have focus groups that will sit on YouTube or whichever forum all day and pretend to be a hundred different people. So whether these people are attacking me from a government-sponsored thing, I don't know and I'll never know. But what I can say is, is that those same government employees that are earning money to troll are just as bad as the psychologically deranged, you know, mediocre loser in his basement hating. They're both the same thing, you know, they're both... And this is why, you know, like, um, I hate to quote the Bible, but it says in the end times it will be a spiritual war, not a, not a physical war. And the uh, these people are little demonic entities that are just like, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting way to put it. And that's one of the reasons why I focused on it with, with the film we're making is that it was more a matter of addressing the tactics so that people are aware of them. It's like, it, I usually tell people at the most basic level, when we're in school, you know, we're taught that just making fun of someone is a way to invalidate them or to make them appear inferior, even if they're completely correct in everything they said, if you can get everybody laughing at them, then suddenly they're wrong, even if they're not. And that's yeah. that's the basic principle that we're taught at a very young age. And it's a, it's an attempt to control the minds of everybody around you and prevent people from thinking. You know, yeah. the whole concept behind free speech is so that you can articulately, you know, um, criticize the establishment in a way that's constructive. Whereas, you know, um, just telling, you know, focusing on something like, you know, I get that you're fat a lot. You know, I'm like, okay, well... Um, yes, I'm fat. I could lose weight, but you'll still be an asshole. Um, yeah. <laughs> regardless of the fact that me being fat is not relevant to discussions about yeah. economics or war or activism, you know, yeah. that, that that's the kind of stuff that is the way I said to people is that they're trying to suppress your ability to think and they're trying to, you know, scare you out of it because yeah. so many people get caught up in not wanting to be the person being picked on that, that just kind of suppresses, suppresses their ability to think. So yeah, absolutely, and I um I I, I sometimes I write the debate just for my own fun purposes, and I write sometimes on my videos. I say, look, guys, if you guys hate me so much, I'm every day I'm at Occupy London. You know where that is? Come and come and fight me. Come and beat me up. Do whatever you want. And then you go down to Occupy London, and they're not there because the haters they don't want physical. They don't want a direct confrontation. They just want to shit on your stuff. So that's it. Right. But, um. But anyway. That's a very well, giving the yeah. We should move on from this hatred subject because you know we don't want to give them too much um, of our energy. <laughs> but did you see a story, Neil, um, that kind of broke my heart? I wasn't surprised by it. It was in the mainstream media about a little Chinese girl. She might have been the same age as your son, four or five years old, that got hit by a bus in or a car in China, at, and the CCTV footage 
um, she was just lying there, and no one went to help her, and then she got hit by another car. And then for about half an hour, all the passers-by, people stepping over her body, not helping this little girl. And that, to me, because that's not a Chinese problem, that's a world problem, because that happens in London. People get stabbed on a bus and everyone ignores them. That shows just how conditioned and dehumanized most, and not all, but most people are. And psychologists call it de-individuation, where people, they turn into a mob or into a herd, and they just act like everyone else. And um, this is why I think the 2012 spiritual awakening of man is one big load of bullshit, because um, human beings, in a way, in general, we're never going to get a majority consensus, because the way the public school system, the, 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 the feeding, the nutrition, and the media, and the brainwashing is gone is that most people are not even recognizable as humans anymore. So any kind of change we want to see will have to be small groups of people. But that little Chinese girl, it broke my heart because it showed me in absolute clarity how most people are disconnected from the human soul. They are machines. They are productive office or factory machines. And they would leave a little five-year-old girl to die and suffer in the street and step over her body. And that just sums up the human condition for me. Well, you know, there was another video like that where they were doing kind of a study where they had a small little girl, uh, probably about six or seven. She was an actor, and they basically kept staging over and over again what was obviously a child abduction. And yeah. they did it like five different times. And all of the, the suburbanite, like, middle-class types just ignored it and walked on as if nothing was happening. It ended up being two black gentlemen who are obviously from the lower income area just by the way they were dressed and all that, who are the only people yeah. who did anything. They, you know, yeah, they, went the, they were going to beat him down and they had to come yeah. and come forward and yeah. say, oh, hey, hey, it, this is just an act, you know, it, it, which is a good thing because that guy was about to go down. <laughs> yeah. So and That reminds me, that's, that's exactly like the Chinese girl story that the kind of middle class suburbanite people are, oh, well, not my problem. She's probably a little scummy girl anyway. Whatever. Let her go and get raped by the pedophile. But um, last time I got arrested in London, it's funny, the Metropolitan Police, they've done um, official inquiries into the Metropolitan Police, and they found that it's an, it's an institutionally racist organization. And that doesn't affect me, because I'm white. But um, I found that in my custody, I was in custody for three days, all the white people that dealt with me treated me with hatred and derision, and they were snidey and sarcastic, and all the black people, and this is courthouse prison or in the prison I was held out, all the black prison officers were gentle and kind and listening and understanding. And I've never been more racist against white people than the time I was in prison. That's an excellent, an excellent point. And I think that it, a lot of it is cultural, you know, um, yeah. because it, like I would say earlier, it's people always, you know, that uh, the racists, for example, they'll identify a problem one way or the other. There are aspects, because I grew up in, in bad neighborhoods, you know, the, of the hip-hop culture that I don't like. That would be the part of it that, you know, basically refers to women as bitches and hoes and, you know, glorifies men who cheat on their girlfriends and have like six or seven of them and, you know, people who just actively engage in violence and drug dealing. And then there's an aspect of the hip-hop culture that I do like, and that's why I say it's a cultural issue. When I grew up in Pontiac, I actually had more problems with the white kids who were trying to be part of that culture than I did with the black kids, you know, um, yeah, that, that would be the word, um, you know, and it's interesting because, it, you know, it is, does come down to that, that whole cultural issue of, of insensitivity. And it amazed me to look at that, you know, um, just how much people can be affected by, you know, the areas that they grow up in and what kind of values they have. And also, as you pointed out, you know, it's like someone in the, was asked, you know, that a lot of it has to do with the amount of money you have affecting, you know, your outlook on life. So, yeah. Thanks again, Charlie, for being on my show. We're now down to the last 90 seconds. I know you said you needed to go. Um, go ahead and uh, tell the listeners where they can find your show again. Yeah, the best way is just type in The Love Police into any search engine, and you will find my website and my work. And um, I guess, um, can I just give a final message to all the listeners, 10, 20 seconds? Please go ahead. Yeah, um, it's time now, I think, to start organizing into small and tight um, groups, uh, underground groups. And uh, remember, you cannot defeat the police on a direct open field battle because they own the kind of physical realm with their guns and tanks and all that stuff. But what you can do, and I need to be very careful what I say here for legal reasons, is that you can do uh, guerrilla tactics where you go in, you strike, and you disappear. 
and maintain your anonymity. Do not organize anything by email. Do not organize it on the telephone. And remember, we have morality on our side. And ultimately, we will win because the system seems to be doing a good enough job of destroying itself. So stay strong, realize how powerful you are, and don't ever let any establishment drone or any hateful person bring you down because the reason they're trying to bring you down is because they hate themselves. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thanks for being on V-Radio. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Thank you. Thank you. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.